2: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 13th, 2017. The Red, Red Line edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in New York today. Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation on CBS, is in Washington. Is that right, John?
1: It's true. I'm in Washington.
2: We are all scattered to the winds. It means, however, an assault you could hit any one of the three Gabfest spots, but two thirds of the show would survive. So we've we're safe. The show can continue in case there's a surgical strike on New York, New Haven, or Washington. That's reassuring for all of us and for our listeners. On this week's Gabfest, the aftermath of the administration's attack on Syria And it's growing showdown with Russia. Then, how excited and delighted should Republicans be that they held on to a House seat in Kansas? What's going on with these special elections? Do they portend anything for 2018? Then, the United Airlines passenger-dragging flap. Is this a silly (laughs) viral story? Why are you giggling, John?
1: Because uh, for some
2: reason... An incomplete image of a passenger dragging flap Uh, came into my head. So is anyway, is that United Airlines story? Is that just a silly viral story? Is it or is it a portent of terrors to come in economy class where we will all be flaps on an airplane? We will all be tools in the hands of the Chicago authorities. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and for Slate Plus, how much presidential golf is too much presidential golf? Is there any amount of presidential golf which would be too much presidential golf? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus. Two very exciting announcements. Not one, but two. As we've mentioned before on the show, we have a live gabfest in Washington, D.C. in a few weeks on May 10th at the Warner Theater. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And that show is going to be particularly exciting because we have Evan McMullen, the conservative presidential candidate, the Former intelligence official, the very active Trump critic, will be a guest at that show. It's going to be incredibly fun. There are a few tickets left. Please join us for that show Wednesday, May 10th in Washington. And trumpets, or maybe uh, kind of a Western guitar sound. We're coming to Denver. We're coming to Denver. Stop (laughs) snorting and giggling, John. (laughs) Snorting and giggling is not, it's it's disrupting my flow.
0: It's like I have milkshakes up my Denver nose. Enthusiasm. <laughs> well,
1: it's it's Denver enthusiasm mixed with that whatever noise that was that you made to
2: precede the Western guitar sound. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not the musician on this show.
0: We're very high tech in our sound effects.
2: Wednesday, June seventh. Wednesday, June seventh at the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts. We are Coming to Denver for the first time ever, we are really, really excited to be there. Show is at 7.30, and there will be a pre-show cocktail hour for a very limited number of fans. That's a special extra ticket package. And Slate Plus members will receive 30% off tickets to the show. For more information and tickets, visit slate.com live. For both of those shows, May 10th in Washington and June 7th in Denver, Colorado. Woo! 59 Tomahawk missiles struck Syria last week. The quick trigger, President Trump retaliation for the gassing of Syrian civilians by Bashar al-Assad, the tyrannical and murderous dictator of that terribly collapsed country. This strike was a complete reversal of what we believed to be the Trumpian policy, which had been to stay out of the Syrian civil war to ignore the refugee crisis, to focus as much as possible on degrading ISIS and on letting the Russians have more or less a free hand in supporting Assad and doing what they wanted in that country. The war in Syria has turned into the worst crisis of the 21st century, half a million people dead, millions driven from their homes, no end to it in sight. It It is a human catastrophe of the highest order. John, does the tomahawk strike represent any kind of strategy from the Trump administration, or is it simply an action from the administration?
1: I think it represents an action. I'm not sure we know what kind of action it represents. No, there's no strategy. On the one hand, you had Secretary of State saying this does not change U.S. policy at all. So then I asked the Secretary of State, does that mean what you said beforehand, which was that the fate of of Assad will be left up to the Syrian people? And he said, yes, we believe in sovereignty and, uh, and democracy in our country. And he said uh, that the more Assad does these kinds of things, the less legitimacy he'll have in that system. But yes, it's up to the Syrian people. And I said, well, but the Syrian people are either being bombed or turned into refugees or uh, incapable of exercising the franchise through some set of institutions that don't really exist in Syria. So how is that the case? And his argument was the case is that our first priority in Syria is ISIS. So that was pretty clear. But then the UN ambassador said uh, Assad cannot be – cannot stay as ruler of the country and while the US policy is not regime change, we will work with the UN and our partners to get Assad out. Then the Tillerson, uh, the Secretary of State said uh, we're not – the United States is not going to be distracted from its effort to get rid of ISIS by engaging in any hostilities – In response to the use of barrel bombs or blockades to to block humanitarian aid from getting to uh, the suffering Syrians, Um, now this week that appears that barrel bombs have now been put on the list of things that would cause an additional uh, strike. And then there's the whole Russian piece of this. The Russians are involved, they're not involved, the Russians are complicit, but if essentially the Russians allowed a war crime to happen, it doesn't look like the Russians are going to be punished in any way, even though the U.S. changed its position in order to punish the Syrians for use of the sarin gas. So it's very hard to figure out what the strategy is, because by the way, it's hard to figure out what the right strategy was in the first place, um, which is why this has been such a pickle for two U.S. presidents now.
2: Emily, we get in this Syria case an example of an incredibly difficult issue, which has is defied it's defied any kind of solution and it's defied any kind of U.S. policy measures. And you mix that with a president who is allergic to method and allergic to strategy uh, and who is perfectly willing to reverse himself 10 minutes uh, after he has said something. Is there any chance that this is something that the president will pay attention to, the administration will continue to pay attention to that remains a persistent focus of U.S. policy? Or is this, you know, what I assume it will be, which is, oh, it it, it flitted across Trump's eyelids, so we did a strike, and it will flit away as everything flits away because there's no method and no order to what the administration is pursuing.
0: The latter seems like the right answer, except that this isn't entirely in... Trump's control in the sense that what Assad does next, what the Russians do next in Syria, like there are other players on this field. And so they could get his attention again. And, you know, at the moment you do this kind of missile strike and other presidents did this in the beginning of their presidencies, right? It's like sort of a ritual that people go through. It's a show of might. It may not have any strategic purpose or effect, but Americans tend to cheer unless something terrible happens afterward. It, it, you can kind of get away with it, even if it doesn't have any great purpose. But it's possible, of course, that Assad can conclude from this, like that he emerges stronger because this missile attack didn't really do anything. So he kind of brushes himself off and moves right along. I suppose that if he doesn't commit another, you know, nerve gas attack, then the administration can try to take credit for that.
1: We should note that the use of sarin gas is a, I mean, that's a big deal. So...
0: And... The Syrians were supposed to be rid of they were supposed to have given up their chemical weapons. That was the sort of quest, the deal that the Obama administration supposedly negotiated. They clearly didn't do that. And so, I mean, I understand why Trump felt like he had to take some action. It's just the the idea that it's going to be sustained in some way. I feel like we don't even have the illusion of coherence right now.
2: There are almost two questions here. One is, what do we do about a violation of international law as grotesque as the use of sarin gas on civilians, What do we do about U.S. policy towards Syria? Those are those are related but not identical questions. I mean, do you think there, there, there are answers to either of those questions?
0: I mean, well, they are answers, but they're answers. not very satisfying.
2: Yeah. I mean, to answer my own question myself, what what would President David Plaza's policy be is we are not willing, nor should we be willing to commit forces, ground forces or serious money and 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 energy to fight in this war because, A, it would provoke a conflict with Russia that we don't particularly want to have. B, there is no reasonable possibility that our involvement will resolve it. It is causing a massive humanitarian crisis, but it is not something that we can actually fix. And if there's something, if you know, wherever you cannot do something, you cannot make something better, do not do anything. The kind of original sin of all of this is the massive focus that U.S., foreign policy community, and Trump has not been immune to this, has put on the Middle East. You know, think of how many wars or military actions the United States has engaged in the Middle East over the past 25 years. It's so many, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, you know, ongoing conflict with, with Iran, that we were, had forces in Lebanon. It's insane. And, well, and they all
1: have different reasons, even though they share a geographical spot. I mean, Iran becoming a nuclear power is not in, is not inconsequential. And Afghanistan being the place where al-Qaeda was able to equip and train was not inconsequential. And the Syrian refugee crisis, which doesn't necessarily, in, in fact, maybe doesn't explicitly, doesn't call for a military response. But those are three separate but, but not inconsequential uh, uh, reasons to be pretty
2: heavily involved in the Middle East, not the least. And then, of course, there's the oil. I think I disagree. You know what? I think I fundamentally disagree. I, I, I actually think I believe that had we done nothing in Afghanistan, had we done nothing in Syria, nothing in Libya, nothing in Iran, literally done nothing, the world would not be in any worse shape and would probably be in better shape than it is today. The U.S. would not be a weaker power as a result and had we instead put our energy into places that were not fucked up and <laughs> you know sought to build up the burgeoning democracies in southeast asia or in central america or in africa like that would have been a lot better time and energy than on places that that are very unreceptive to united states power especially these days
1: but my point is you now have got have talked about four different cases and i think you at can at i'm probably that. going
2: towards like seven yeah. by the end of it
1: can i say one other thing about that is um I think, more interesting than what happened in Syria, is that when we talk about the unpredictability of Donald Trump's action in Syria, or maybe it's thoroughly predictable, like, because it's gotten bipartisan praise, and therefore, it's kind of what presidents are supposed to do. There's a horrible act. The United States is the leader of the free world in keeping norms, and so the U.S. is supposed to react. It's it's interesting, of course, that a norm-breaking president is— the guardian of this um, international norm, but what the president did on China, which is to say, finally announce what he was never going to be able to do anyway, which was to declare China a currency manipulator, because none of the conditions that at least there's a three-part test, and I don't think China met any of the three parts of the test. But nevertheless, uh, he said that's what he was going to do in the in the campaign. It was an unrealistic thing to claim, but now he has said out loud what everybody knew was the case, but it represents a pretty major climb down on China rhetoric from the campaign to where he is now. He has also, though he still talks about balance of payments in NATO, way changed his position on NATO. And so you could argue that the unpredictable switchbacks of Syria are a part of what is in the foreign policy you know, world, a much more rational approach to foreign policy with China and NATO than anybody would have expected coming from Donald Trump.
2: Well, and ma- and sort of mainstream. That's true. Although it's, a, it's sort of reflects more like laziness than anything else, which is that he thought he made these grand claims, said, oh, I'm just going to come in here and do these things. Got got to office, realized it was going to take more than 12 minutes to actually do them. He's a lazy, uh, intellectually. Uh, lazy and actively lazy person. And was like, okay, forget it. Um, oh, I don't know, you know about he that. Didn't...
1: He's still carrying on some things that are... And also, Bill Clinton was, was you know, was rattling the saber against China and then helped get them into the World Trade Organization. So this is not right. an that's uncommon the, well, it's, it,
2: That's the China policy, is that this is what every... I mean, Jacob Weisberg wrote a great piece about this, I think, 20 years ago, which is this is what every... Presidential candidate does is they threaten China, they talk about China, uh, you know how the way w- the way that China is violating this or that law or this or that norm and then as soon as you're in office it's no we let's just you know get regular regular uh, trade with china and give them their uh, sphere of influence in the far east and that's just fine we won't trouble them anymore
1: but i guess the low bar i was crossing was just to say that a president who has not followed in the grooves of his predecessors in lots and lots and lots of other ways seems at least on foreign policy um to be doing that more than in other areas.
0: The thing I find so disconcerting are these remarks, like the kind that Trump made about healthcare and now about North Korea, like, oh, who knew this was so complicated? I mean, that suggests to me just, you know, not waffling for the sake of waffling, but like literally I knew nothing about this and now I know a little bit and I'm willing to completely change my mind. And maybe we should give him credit for being willing to learn, but it suggests like, such a depth of ignorance that I find that really startling.
2: You're you were startled by that after <laughs> watching this man for two years? This was a no, surprise I mean, to you?
0: I don't think it's a good idea for the the leader of the free world to say like, oh, I talked to the president of China about North Korea for ten minutes and actually China can't just like go in on stomp them. Who knew? I it it's just incredibly disconcerting to imagine that our president I mean, what did he think when Trump said that it's i uh, it's uh, yeah okay well, it's not startling but it's still upsetting i'm sure
2: i'm sure he thought this is great the president of the united states is as dumb and ignorant as i as thought a he was also, great that's, also, also, be sure good. so easy are you, to manipulate
1: are you sure you want the alternative which is to say oh yeah i've got it figured out like it's all going i mean that's not that's no that's no better well that
2: he does that too no i know he i was just that. about to say yeah. and that's Yeah, Uh, good
0: point. But But don't you think both uh, of them are just like, uh, I just feel like we've never, we have, this is the uncharted territory part that I find deeply unsettling, even if I should not be startled.
1: Remember that the promise was that despite the complexity of the world, the promise was that the president would be able to come in and learn about it, fix it, deal with it quickly. Literally his signature talent was knowing how to get stuff done when things look too complicated.
0: Okay, well, it's good to be reminded that that was like a flash in the pan. Can I ask a question? What What are we to make of all the policy head spinning changes vis-a-vis Russia? I cannot figure out what Tillerson is doing the whole f- I mean, am I like trying to find order where there is merely chaos and it's like silly to even ask the question? I'm just so confused.
2: Yes.
1: It's totally confusing. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be, it would be confusing no matter who the president is. Syria is not like some simple thing that can be solved. Secondarily, Russia is not some simple thing that can be solved. And North Korea is now doing things that have nothing to do, well, not nothing, but uh, now North Korea is now doing a bunch of things that are more aggressive than they were under the previous administration. So, Because,
0: gee, when your president looks weak, suddenly like people rush to fill the power vacuum.
1: Yeah, I mean, but that's also what they said about president obama yeah it's a complicated world and an unpredictable president who i though go back on nato and china he's being pretty darn predictable swayed by the essentially the foreign policy consensus
2: i want to actually spend the last 30 seconds of this topic just on the question of whether these serious strikes are legal which actually not in itself that interesting a question um probably (laughs) <laughs> probably it's not in itself that interesting question. It's like it's there's been so many of these kinds of strikes over the re- recent years. The presidents have done autonomously. They found cover in some other use authorization of military force or something the United Nations said 17 years ago. What is interesting to me about this question is we have had a Congress, a Congress which has been very uh, enthusiastic to say, you know, now now we're really eager to exert our Article I powers, to stand up and really uh, play a, a key role and legislate and help govern and have oversight. And, you know, we have a president who doesn't have a lot of experience, so it's time for Congress to act. And how bankrupt and absent they have been in this case. To, to just be blank and vacant about it is, is lame. I th- that is my. I, d- I think
1: uh, I'd ha- I hate to um, uh, ruin Agree. that good. Uh, no, yeah, no. I mean, I think you're. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Even if, even by the way, if what the president did was legal, getting Congress to stand up for both its power and and give its, you know, assent or at least speak for the will of the people is uh, really important. And the
0: other. Th- The other thing to add is that what Trump did here in terms of his justification for the strike is a step beyond what other presidents have done. So, you know, you go back to 2011 and the Libya strikes. Obama pushed the envelope on that one, but he had some justification that the United States, it wasn't merely the United States acting on its own interests. It was trying to make sure that the U.N. and the Security Council's mandate was being followed. This time, we have simply our national interests are at stake. And as Jack Goldsmith points out in a really good um, essay for Lawfare, there's just no limit on that. I mean, a president can invoke that in Any way, shape, or form. And so then all we're left with is the notion that this was just a strike of limited scope and duration. So, like, don't worry about it. It's just a one off. The question that raises, of course, is if something more sustained happens, then how do you, where does this larger justification come from? And as you're both saying, when does Congress actually get into the picture here?
2: This episode of the Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family, give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A poor to middling Republican candidate in a bright, bright red district narrowly defeated a totally unknown Bernie Sanders-backed Democrat in a special election for House seat in Kansas on Tuesday. Seven-point win for Mr. Estes, Congressman Estes, in a district previously uh, won by Mike Pompeo, now CIA director, won by Pompeo in November by 30 points. Has Democrats excited that their grassroots enthusiasm may herald a Democratic wave in 2018? So... Emily, was in fact this a moral victory for Democrats?
0: It was promising because they were, you know, what, like 20 points up from November. But when you lose, you lose. And I think it's a mistake to read too much into any one of these special elections. What's more interesting to me is what we're going to see after we have a few more of them. I mean, we're looking to Georgia, to Montana. And then it's, you sort of wonder, okay, then maybe you're taking the pulse. Whereas this one seemed to me while well, it was like Democrats could do a little fist pump. I mean, I would argue that like poor middling is understating it for Estes. He was chosen by like a bunch of party leaders, essentially in a you know back room in Kansas. He's very much tied to Bre- the to Governor Brownback, who's basically like bankrupted that state, and apparently he's very uncharismatic. So it just, it, I think you don't want to read too much into this one.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the it's for the party out of power. It's a good shape up cruise. You know, get everybody. Going, I think the problem is that these off-year elections and stuff are – they're a mixed bag in terms of whether they really portend anything. And they show you what, what kind of lines of argument work. But I think what, what, I, what strikes me about particularly the one um, – the race in Georgia, there's been some great writing. Jonathan Martin and also our uh, dear friend Dave Weigel have written about uh, Georgia to replace Tom Price's seat. One is this is a, I believe, according to the Cook Political Report, this is the third fastest democratic moving congressional district so it is the coalition of the ascendant (laughs) that coalition that hillary clinton was supposed to take advantage of and win more voters of color making it a more lean democratic state trump won it by a little less than two points romney won it by 20 plus so it's a it's a place of flux it's a place that's interesting and it's the kind of place republicans are going to be you know have a tougher time defending and democrats hope to take which is different than the pompeo seat the second thing is In both the Martin and and Weigel pieces, you see this extraordinary flipping and changing of positions on the part of conservatives and grassroots activists in the state. And the words being used by the candidate, Karen Handel, who's one of the top Republicans running for that seat, her language is much more pragmatic She claimed that the health care plan was not Tom Price's plan. Tom Price being the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services who campaigned for the plan, including on shows like Face the Nation and pushed for it. So to say it's not his plan is um, amusing that she and other Republicans in that seat are not running as Freedom Caucus members. Remember, this is in, you know, you're running to get the support of your most enthusiastic supporters because your general election voters are not turning out, probably. And then the Jonathan Martin piece in the Times has all these great quotes from Tea Party leaders basically being hugely pragmatic and the reason that strikes me is that it used to be the the signature central characteristic that belief pattern that what they hated was that people went to Washington and just became pragmatic and changed their views that they never stayed fixed and yet in the in the in the way they have to kind of accommodate Donald Trump who has no fixed ideology requires taking that on themselves, which used to be the thing that they used to cl- point to and say that is the
2: awfulness of politics. Even if Democrats can't win a lot of these seats that they're going to compete in, John, what does the fact that they can now that they're now putting up candidates and running people and forcing fundraising? Does that give them a a leg and and help them because it generally forces Republicans to compete in a lot more places and therefore, They'll distract Republicans and that will be a a gain for them in the long term. Does that matter?
1: Here's yeah, I think it does two good things. One, it strengthens the Democratic Party uh, because it, it gets people, you know, they're signing up people who haven't participated in voting before. They are figuring out what it is that they truly believe in and what rallies people. They get their fundraising system going and it helps the Republican Party in theory, because competition is great for both parties. And so it helps the Republican Party and Republicans say, well, what does Donald Trump believe in? And what do we believe in? And if we don't have a thing that we all believe in, and we're just being super pragmatic, and we're finding ourselves having a difficulty figuring out what it is that we believe in, that's Not good. In the uh, Martin piece, he's quoting um, a conservative and uh, he says, uh, this conservative Mr. Fitzgerald says, there are shades. Can I point to an individual and say, here's your ideal conservative? And then Martin writes, he did not answer his own question, but he did not need to because they can't. You can't point to Reagan because of the way in which Trump is not Reagan. And so that's great for a party to have to force itself to compete everywhere and define what it really believes, because that's the stuff that endures, not the momentary affections for an individual candidate, which even some Democrats say was one of the negative legacies of the Obama years, which is that they fell in love with a person and kind of lost
2: track of what their
1: bedrock set of, of ideas were.
2: Emily. Do you think the absence of the health care law really is going to matter for individual Republican candidates? It's clear that Congress as an institution remains loathed, but is it, is it clear that individual candidates and individual districts are going to bear culpability?
0: Well, these are such red or such blue districts, how, how much in the margins can it really matter? But I think that in districts where Obamacare was really hated— the fact that they have done nothing, I can't imagine that's gonna like get voters really excited to go to the polls. In districts where people have come to have a new found or larger appreciation of Obamacare, that might Feel nervous about what the Republicans try to do. And surely the Democratic opponents are going to run ads about that. And I think more largely, if tax reform doesn't get moved, like if the Republicans have other things to show as legislative accomplishments that resonate with the voters, then I think it will be much easier for their supporters to get excited and come out and support them. Right now, what they have is Gorsuch, which is good. I mean, I think Gorsuch is a huge win for the right, but Gorsuch doesn't speak to the midterms, particularly, because it has nothing to do with the House and only, uh, you know, something to do with the Senate. So I feel like they need something other than Gorsuch to get people riled up. And otherwise, they just risk not having their usual turnout advantage in the midterms. It seems to me like that's what's at issue is who actually comes to vote.
2: All right. The United Airlines story. It's just like a series of it's a series of exclamation points. We can just say Dr. David Dow dragged off overbooked Chicago to Louisville flight after not enough people took money to leave the flight. An Asian American man, huge damage in the Chinese market. Terrible response from United Airlines. Initially, its CEO, Oscar Munoz, Uh, cops enlisted to do the work of airline employees massive viral response. It was just this perfect encapsulation of everything everybody hates about airlines, everything everybody fears. It was a crazy explosive story. I didn't I don't I didn't prepare a kind of coherent um introduction to it because everyone's seen this video. We can just and heard about it
0: as the memory yes. of
2: it. Can
1: you clear up something for me and the viewing audience? Mhm. Um listening. But yes. <laughs> which is <laughs> maybe uh, Is it the case that basically United needed to get some of its pilots down to Louisiana for whatever reason they had to get them down there? Louisville, sorry. So this wasn't a case of just simply overbooking regular passengers. They were basically trying to eject passengers in order to get their own pilots on, which presumably because they have to fly them down to Louisville because there was a plane sitting in Louisville that needed pilots and would have caused more mayhem in the system. I've been on flights where that's happened. And so there's a domino effect if those other pilots don't get down there. Is that, the, did I read that no, right? that's, that that's true. What but
0: isn't the solution to this obvious, which is that they should have gone up in the offer they were making. I mean, we- Yeah, of course. Right, the, but the I think legally the they're the cops,
2: not allowed to, Emily.
0: No, well, I they went that... up apparently, there's a question of how high they went up. They say they went up to a thousand. Not clear they really did. And they're allowed to go up to $1,450. So they didn't go up to the maximum. 400%. What is they're allowed that? to go up to 400%. OK, what is that cap doing there? I don't understand that at all. That is just like Trump said this. Um, I am in agreement with my president. It seems completely wrongheaded, like the, it should go up as high as it needs to go up to get the people off the plane. We should not have the police dragging someone off the plane and hurting them. There's just no universe in which that's the solution to this problem.
2: The, of course, there's no universe where dragging people off the plane is a solution. But Tyler Cowen has a great piece about this where he points out like if you go and wait in line for a concert ticket and you don't get a concert ticket no one compensates you for not getting the concert ticket there are lots of times when you try to get you try to get get things you want to get things but you don't get things and you you know so it goes but when you're sitting down in concert
0: seat with your ticket which you paid for they don't then say excuse me sir get up and then bottle there's a loss aversion
2: there's a loss aversion thing here which is you're willing to
0: No, it's a contract. You were promised. You yes, you said signed it. You paid a contract. Like yes, there is this fine print that they can kick unless the
1: conditionality only runs one way. Because Emily, drop some knowledge here. But when you purchase a ticket, all that junk on the back of the ticket is a set of terms that you agree to, and you assent to those terms by purchasing the ticket, right, or using the ticket. Yes. And so it's like a lift ticket. So you're assenting to a certain set of things, which makes it a contract. And if the contract only flows one way, then well, that doesn't well, flow the one way. No. You mostly, that get, you that mostly get to print. go
0: in that fine no, print, that... John, are the terms and conditions that allow the yeah. airline to kick you off. It's just that we yeah, don't... Okay. So that's the problem, so then, Wait, so what
1: you're saying is I've got it totally backwards?
0: Yes. But I also think that you're right, or maybe only accidentally right. What I think <laughs> is that the notion that we are really bound by that fine print is a very contested one. And in a number of ways, the Supreme Court has weighed in on the side of the fine print again and again in the last several years. That's why we're in this world of, like, forced binding arbitration about all kinds of disputes but the rest of us have not really in our hearts except for apparently David and Tyler Cowan signed on to this notion we do not think we well, are bound by that well, well, fine print and this is not about uh, so lost my our way to it's us. not this I, if the-
2: i were if i were booted off that flight i would have been livid and i would have been really upset and probably wouldn't have booted me because i'm a white guy and i do think there's an element of racism i i think it's very unlikely they would have done this to a white person the way they did it to this asian american man that said Overbooking is a positive good. We should want overbooking. This idea that we should we want, want to get overbooking, rid of it.
0: but we should also and we should, be able and accept to bargain that when when, that when we get off when we have to get there. But yeah, yeah the, the four, but there the are cases. There are extreme a, cases.
2: They, they well, maybe that's the problem. Or there, well, or you just have to. Or if you problem. are, if if you are not a frequent flyer member, if you're not a first class passenger, if you're not a loyal member, you've paid. What you've done is you've gone on Expedia. You've gone on some. To some site and you've sought the lowest possible fare. You have sought a fare where you don't have to pay. You know where you're willing to pay for the Coca Cola. You're willing to pay for overhead space. I certainly accept when I buy an airline ticket that there that I am ex- I'm buying a certain level of inconvenience and discomfort and and well, risk then, and not safety David, there risk. is so then, much then of because of that that
0: i mean come on have, you know delta is doing this thing sometimes where like before you even get there they start bargaining with you or letting you know right. it, it's just indefensible united's approach to this was rigid and cruel and completely unnecessary just it's not defensible yeah. so yes like now we're all of on co- alert in a way that i wasn't before that this fine print allows the airline to involuntarily take you off the plane but that does not mean that this is how they should be um no. implementing well, these contracts it's just wrong
1: yeah no no he's he's not saying that they should be like dragooning people off the plane but uh but i think still though i i pretty much have priced myself out of the conversation by my misunderstanding of contract that law. that was useful uh, misunderstanding
0: still, yeah thank you
1: i'm a, i am <clears throat> i have played once again the obtuse uh interrogator but um <laughs> The uh uh but I do still think that the analogy is totally wrong. The waiting in line analogy is wrong.
0: But also we haven't given the cops enough of a hard time. I mean, that was insane watching that. Yes. And I know that like this is something that, you know, poor people deal with frequently. Um I get that, but like it it is not right. And it is really alarming to see the police be so incredibly heavy handed and downright scary.
2: Yeah. But also, yes, okay, that's all. It's all. I think it's the positing. It's it's so easy to say, United was stupid. Ah, uh, the cops were terrible. The fact that the cops can be called to do that work on by yeah. United, you know, to t- is ridiculous. I mean, it, that's worrisome. That's all true. I but I just I I actually think the fundamental question is really about what is the what is your relationship with the services that you buy. And that that if you want to have better customer service, and if you want to be treated well, you need to not go and try to buy the cheapest ass airline ticket you can buy. That better customer service costs people money, and well, that's fine. Then eject people from the plane based on the the fare
1: of their ticket. Yeah. And make it more explicit right. for those who. I th- decide. And, and I in think, fact, aren't th- they doing that?
0: Well, they're not making it explicit enough. And actually, the transportation secretary just suspended some rules that would have called for greater transparency. Um, and there have been, like, my senator, Senator Blumenthal, happens to be interested in this and has been asking for more transparency. And we we should have that, and we don't. I had no idea they could involuntarily like kick people off the plane.
2: I mean, and airlines are airlines are. Are going to be. I mean, the 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 most important thing that happened here is that this was filmed and put on social media because airlines yes. just don't want to be in this position. They know it, it, United Airlines would have paid at this point probably fifty million dollars to each passenger to get off that plane. That yeah. would have been a better deal than what's happened to them now. Literally, right. probably right. You- it would have been made more sense.
0: And now our pr- protection against the worst corporate abuses is simply like our our iPhone videos or whatever our smartphone videos. That I mean, that is a reality of consumer life right now. It's kind of crazy.
1: David, as somebody who believes in the abject apology, um, can you evaluate the <laughs> response from United <laughs> to the?
2: <laughs> oh my God! It was so bad. It was so painful. sad. It was so. It was this combination of. of- Garblees, corporates that were deaccommodate, which, which Oscar Munoz, the CEO, used, the non-apology, the attacking of the passenger. It was, it was amazing. They should have just been super abject. And, and they are going to, I do think they're going to have to do some work in China and with Asian Americans because the fact that this is a, an elderly Chinese American man, a doctor, a professional, is not it's not a good look. It is not a good look for for the airline to be signaling that person out. Uh, and and it sounds like that United, which has a huge, huge Pacific business to China, is uh, going to suffer in the Chinese market because of it. and they they I don't know what they need to do, but they need a much better apology. Let's say that United is contractually bound not to pay more than dollars, and people won't leave. What should they have done?
1: Just not take off until they leave. And then create a situation for uh, people to take things into their own hands and start a melee in aisle 12. But the the
0: thing about that, that would be, I mean, that shaming ritual, surely it would work, but it seems so unfair because why did this guy get selected in the first place? Like, there's nothing fair about the decision-making in that moment. It's going to feel arbitrary. And so, sure, the other customers are going to get mad, but, like, what real standing do you have to turn to the person sitting next to you and say like you got to get off the plane i'm not going but right. you got to go
2: if you just said we plane can't go anywhere until somebody until the you know,
0: passenger in seat
2: 16 well no no not until the passenger in 16c takes it until somebody you know some set of people on this plane you know take off. this I think, compensation i think what they should do is say it would look work
1: to the person look to the person mm-hmm. to the left of you look to the person to the right. Of you.
0: <laughs> who do you think should survive Men, the next two exactly. hours
1: <laughs>
2: Yeah. I really um, – that
0: cap, now that I know about that cap, I'm just absolutely agitated by it. It makes no sense.
2: I, but I don't think that – I'm not even sure about that because, Emily, the, one of the thing the cap does is prevents people from holding the airline hostage. Well, so they should hold the airline hostage. Should...
0: Too bad. Like, if you th- – look, I'm sorry. I, I identify strongly with this. If I buy a ticket and I think I get to be on a particular plane – Damn it! I get to be on that plane. I don't care what the fine print says. They should have to pay me a lot of money to get off that plane. If it's worth it to me to have a fight with them, like that's how it goes.
2: I don't know. I don't like the idea that there's now every time there's an overbooking, uh, everybody on the the plane is it's just going to be an auction situation, and it's going to be like four hundred. Do I hear six hundred? You know, eight hundred. But it already is that. Where planet
0: have you been living on? It happens all the time. You haven't been on a flight where they like. Well, but it's limited. It's limited.
2: Yeah, but it's well, limited.
0: I didn't know it was limited, and I don't think it should be limited. And I think the way Delta is doing this ahead of time makes so much more sense. Because before you leave for the airport, often I really don't care what time the plane is. But once I'm there, I don't want to sit there for hours.
1: This is true. Let me say one one final thing, though. I feel like I'm taking the Mataglasius uh, po- posture here, which is that it, I must say that United, every time I have flown United, they have gotten me to my destination safely and— Like the big eye on the ball is is
0: that—that's what matters. That's really supposed to do. Yes.
1: Um, Now that's so that's super important perspective. Having said that, while we're in this space, how there is some kind of special blindness that they can't come up with a better way to board the damn airplanes, and so if they are so incapable of finding a better way to board airplanes, and this is true of all airlines, even the ones that do a better job than others, I worry that they are incapable. Their inability to solve that chronic and soluble and real issue means that in other places, and this is one of them that was uh, demonstrated this week by hauling the poor passenger off the plane, but that in other places there are, there are going to be slip ups.
2: I guess my view on that is the planes are safer than they have ever been. There hasn't been, I think, a commercial airline crash in the U.S., in a very long time, I don't have enough. go knock on some time. wood,
0: please.
2: Um, okay. Check in is easier than it's ever been. Luggage gets there better than it's ever gotten there. We have made significant improvements, and
1: don't forget excellence in small pretzels. <laughs> we have made <laughs> <significant> small <laughs>
2: You know, I learned this whole thing about pretzels. Uh, I was at a pretzel factory, which is very so disappointing. Which is that all pretzels used to be hand turned, and now they're stamped out, and so. There's a, a little bit of a loss of the idiosyncratic work there. Those mini pretzels, pretzels, no one, no human weird. has touched them.
0: They smell weird in a way that I can't quite figure yeah. out. Even when it's a familiar brand, they smell weird. I'm st- I'm like puzzled by that fact.
2: Well, everything on airlines is your senses are all off. Your sense of taste and and smell That's are true, way off. But on I ar- feel like the airplanes.
0: pretzels are particularly weird smelling. I don't know.
2: That's why people always have the uh, Bloody Mary mix on planes because they're things that are acidic and sharp and spicy register better because your taste huh. buds are numbed
1: i'm sure that's why i do it although actually i've never had a bloody mary bloody mary on a plane <laughs> um hey uh can i just make one um uh, throw one other meta question out to the group which is um do we need these kinds of public moments where everybody can rage against you know yes. a clear screw up uh to feel good about ourselves um and uh, isn't that actually not great? Or maybe it's just a good catharsis for everybody in uncertain times that they can still find easily identifiable villains and um, and excoriate them and therefore isn't united in a fashion providing a,
2: a public good greater than the one they provide by. Yes. By flying. Just like Cecil the lion and Harambe. Totally. Well said, John. Good. Yes. point. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what they you're, should do in their PR campaign. David Ma Dow cool. suffered for our our pleasure. Right. Um, and
1: that's really the message of outrage. Easter.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Judge the dickens out of them. Done, <laughs> <laughs> done. Mic drop. Okay. And that section right there. <laughs> Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're having your uh, your – Passover Manischewitz or your Easter cocktail this weekend, Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about?
0: Well, in my continuing uh, intermittent monitoring of the Justice Department, my reason for outrage this week was that Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, canceled the. Uh, National Academy of Science Committee that has been looking at forensic science. Why did he do this? Well, you know, if you actually started holding a lot of forensic techniques like the really ridiculed bite mark science and some of the burn testimony and even fingerprints to scientific standards, it would become harder to get convictions. And Sessions, is a former prosecutor, he doesn't like this idea. So he'd rather just not learn about how shoddy a lot of the science is behind these kinds of analyses and there was just this really amazing quote from him. Well, so first of all, Radley Belco has, as usual, a really great piece about this in the Washington Post. But the amazing thing he quoted was that when witnesses, this is at a Senate hearing about this committee report. When Sessions was in the Senate, witnesses noted there was no scientific research to support the field of handwriting analysis, Sessions remarked, quote, well, I've seen them testify and I've seen blowups of the handwriting and it's pretty impressive, end quote. Radley says, who are you going to believe, a team of scientists or Jeff Sessions's sense of wonder? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's where we are. The Attorney General of the United States thinks the handwriting analysis looks great. And so let's not study it anymore. Thank
2: you. John Dickerson, what is your chatter?
1: I came across a story that I'm sort of amazed that I've never heard before, but that's – the kind of amazement at, at your sense of wonder? that's my John. sense of wonder and amazement that uh, propels much of the much of what I do that. Um, anyway, this is perhaps known to other people. Sometimes history has parallels to the modern uh, age. Other times, history tells us stories to which there is no connection. The book is called The Gatekeepers, and it's a great book about the chiefs of staff since Haldeman with Nixon that are the gatekeepers for the presidents and the important roles they play and the good ones and the bad ones and all of the rest. In it is a story uh, that Haldeman tells of the Nixon transition and in that transition uh, transition that Nixon was, was uh, looking to exact revenge on his enemies. This is after he's been successfully elected to the presidency and as a part of that he called in J. Edgar Hoover, the longest serving FBI director. And the uh, FBI director told Nixon something very interesting. He told Nixon that LBJ, the previous president, had ordered the FBI to wiretap Nixon, wiretap being a term of art that the FBI director used in his conversations with the incoming president, that he had wiretapped Nixon during the campaign. In fact, he told Nixon that Johnson himself had directed the FBI to, quote-unquote, bug Nixon's campaign airplane and that this had been done. Now, no such bug had, in fact, been planted on Nixon's plane. Hoover was lying to the president-elect because he was basically trying to get on his good side by telling him lies that he thought would feed his sense of revenge. So Nixon, in responding to this news about his campaign plane being bugged, said to Haldeman, Well, I don't blame him, him being Johnson. He's been under such pressure because of the damned war. He'd do anything. Period which is an interesting historical reflection on the behavior
2: of the current president. The book is called The Gatekeepers. My chatter is the most self-serving triple chatter of all time. Incredibly self-serving. First of all, Saturday, May 6th is Obscura Day. Atlas Obscura, my beloved company, has an international global day of exploration. It's that we're trying to Make you know, make everyone know the world is out there. It's grand, it's strange, it's wonderful, and you should explore it. And so on May 6th this year, one on a Saturday in the spring every year, we celebrate Obscura Day. And that means we're doing 175 events in 36 states, 25 countries that encourage you to get going out into the world. So you can, if you're in D.C., go see the Ghost Fleet of Mallows Bay, the largest ship graveyard in, in uh The Western Hemisphere. If you're in LA, uh, you can go hear a concert by the world's greatest whistler, or go see the ruins of Los Angeles Zoo. In the Princeton, we're doing a plasma physics experiment in the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. Uh, We are taking folks to a nuclear reactor in Idaho, the first nuclear reactor in the United States. We're going to a. You can if you're in Alabama, there's a mini village built by a single monk, a most extraordinary set of structures in Alabama. You can go see that in Vienna, Austria. go to the Museum of Contraception. We're doing a behind-the-scenes at the Museum of Contraception. I can only imagine what that is. No, 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 don't go there Uh, because you can't get in. (laughs) That was good. There will be barrier. We're using the barrier methods. Uh, We're going to Bulgarian communist monuments, a tour of the rooftops of Johannesburg, there are so many things going on. It is a day to explore. Go to atlasobscura.com slash obscure Day. It's really my favorite day of the year is Obscura Day because there's so many crazy things in the world for you to see. And we're going to help you see them atlasobscura.com slash Obscura Day. Then quickly, two other things. I was on a great podcast this week, a panoply show called Atlantia which is a show about advertising and marketing and media. Really, really, really smart show by Laura Carenti and Alexa Christen. It, they're incredibly curious hosts. And I had really one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had about media with them. So I would advise you to check out Atlandia. And then another podcast is a podcast called We the People, which is just joining the Panoply family. And there's a We the People live show that I will be on and Mike Pesca will be on in uh, new york on april 25th at the bell house and it's uh this very funny australian host named josh Zepps. it's about politics it's live it's very jolly it's a very jolly show so get tickets for we the people at the bell house on april 25th our intern is kevin townsend our producer jocelyn frank steve lichtai is executive producer of slate podcasts andy bowers is the chief content officer for panoply we're part of the panoply Network, check out our entire roster podcast at panoply.fm. Jason DeLeon helped put the show together and with his usual grace. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at slate gabfest. Our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating for Emily Baslon and John Dickerson. Who, oh, John is just dragged out of the studio by Chicago police. That's too bad. I am David Plotz. We'll see you in our live show in Washington on May 10th and our live show in Denver on June 7th. Go to slate.com slash live and get tickets to join us.